Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview someone I've been wanting to interview for a really long time, Danny Kim from Lit Motors. Danny is an OG of the micromobility space. He was thinking about the impact of electric and what it will enable in terms of vehicle architecture well before pretty much anybody else, as evidenced by both the kind of crazy design of the Cubo, the early scooter, and the C1. The C1 is an enclosed gyro-balanced electric motorbike that, in my view, has amazing potential in terms of providing something that has the performance, weather protection, and safety of a car, but in something that is the package of a motorbike. I think that what Lit Motors is trying to build is not without very substantial risks, but has the potential to be a real game changer in the conversation and urban mobility if they manage to pull it off. I would of course be remiss if I didn't note that Lit Motors has a storied history to say the least. A quick scan of their Wikipedia page certainly makes that clear. Like me, there are a bunch of people who put in pre-orders back in 2012 and 2013 that still haven't seen a vehicle. But after meeting Danny and learning more both about his journey and the technical issues that they've managed to work through, I'm more excited than ever for the potential future of having these crazy, amazing vehicles zooming around our cities. I love bold founders who show incredible tenacity and grit to build something as bold and as crazy as this. Full disclosure, and as mentioned in the episode, I recently invested in Lit Motors on the basis of their team and technology. None of this should be construed as financial advice, and I'm very aware it was an insanely risky investment. But like Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix, said in a recent tweet storm, There are some times when you just want to have a seat in the arena to watch the journey and to cheer on those who are crazy enough to try and build a better world. Danny, in my mind, is one of those. If you haven't already, please be sure to also check out our Rider Choice Awards, the Oscars of the Micromobility World. Voting is now open ahead of Micromobility World on the 19th of January. We've just shifted to the final rounds in many of the categories, and we're excited to see which brands are considered the most popular, whether it's your favorite scooter, e-bike or shared service. With tens of thousands of votes already in, be sure to not miss it. Check it out at micromobility.io. And with that, here is Danny. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, we have with us today, someone who I've been wanting to have on for so long, Danny Kim from Lit Motors. How are you today, Danny? I'm good, Oliver. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well, man. This I feel like I do this every week where I say I've been wanting to have this person on f- forever, but like genuinely, I can't think of like someone who I've wanted to have on more than you. And and I, okay, I want to give the context to this, Danny, which is that I first came across the Lip Motor C1 in 20, what have been in 2013, started 2013 when you guys released it, and then you went live on pre-orders. I put in a pre-order in 2013, and then you know hadn't heard a heap. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like 2019, I get to run into you at Micromobility America. And then again this year. And I just like out of everybody that I've met in this space, you are the one who just is the most resilient and keeps going. And it's, it's like such a cool story. I want to, I want to help you tell it. So welcome. Wonderful to have you here. I'd love for you to just take us through what Lit Motors is trying to build. Yeah, no, thanks Oliver. And yeah, I'm super happy to be here. Um, what we're trying to build is a two-wheeled, fully enclosed, self-balancing electric vehicle. 
Uh, we're agnostic uh, when it comes down to propulsion, but you know we're trying to make impact. And uh, I think like micro mobility or a smaller vehicle that has the same value proposition of a car is important. So we're really just trying to take the best of both worlds: the convenience and the safety of a car with the romance and the efficiency of a motorcycle, and just kind of like yep. and put them together. So hopefully totally. oxidizes, oxidizes in the um, same way that some other car companies have. But, um, you know, I think uh, time time will tell. So Awesome. Well, so just so we'll, we want to unpack that. A fully enclosed electric motorbike that is self-balancing. Because that is... The, the reason I want to... Like why I found this so compelling is I think there is a world in which we get... As I've spent more time in micromobility, I recognize there are barriers to, you know, e-bikes and e-motorbikes. You know, they're wonderful and they're great for short trips. Most trips are short trips, but there's a whole bunch of stuff where people go like, yeah, I know, but I still have to own one vehicle or I want to own a highly capable vehicle and I, and I want it to, I want to have protection from weather. I want to have better safety protection. I want it to be able to be used on roads. And so I've been looking around and obviously I've done interviews with Nimbus and I have other, uh, other like micro car companies that we're working with at the moment uh, or, or talking to at the moment. And uh, McKinsey itself actually has come out and said this, this space of micro cars, the mini mobility space is going to be really important. Yeah. And it's just all of them that I've seen, well, none of them are at one, none of them are quite as cool as the lit motors. Like the, there's idea of having like a, a vehicle that itself is actually only a motorbike, but is, is self-balancing. It's, it's sort of a nuts idea, but you know, nobody has really kind of done what I feel like is the breakout hit in the space. And, and when I first saw what you guys were building back in 2013, 2014, I was like, wow, this could be a really big deal. Because you just, take me through like why mini-mobility is interesting. What, what, Like what's the, from a simplicity perspective, from a uh, materials perspective, that sort of thing, in something that's obviously as performant as a car, you know? What are, yeah. What are the uh, yeah, I'm a believer in science. And I think most people probably who follow your podcast are believers in science as well. Um, it's pretty basic physics. If you have a smaller mass with uh, less mechanical drag, and really aerodynamic, the amount of energy that is required to push that mass or product through the, the wild uh, is less. It just makes sense when you look at like range. Uh, we have about one kilowatt hour uh, produces around like 12 to like maybe 14 uh, miles. We have a low CD. It's a coefficient of drag. We're going to try to hit 0.19 something, uh, but right now we're at 0.206. And uh, that's just for comparison, really huge... so like what would a Model 3 do? I think they're at like point, point 0.26 right now. Not point 0.206, but point 0.26 or point 0.25. Or I think depending on how large you get, you know, it goes all the way to point 0.36, uh, which is really like that's like a motorcycle, actually. So, uh, you know, uh, that's a huge factor. We're only about a 900-pound, maybe a 1,000-pound vehicle uh, with full seatbelts, full safety cell, airbags, uh, steel reinforced door. You know, you get it like a car, you drive it like a car. So and, it has a steering uh, wheel. It's a motorbike, but it's got a steering wheel. You sit inside it. It's got, cl- it's got weather protection. And then right. the part that, like, I think is the part that is hard, and we're obviously on an audio, so it's challenging to show photos of this. I will link to photos. Yeah. Is the how do you get it to balance? Because you want it to come up to a stop sign, and you don't want to have to like Parave's the Parave's Auto Tracer was the it's a Swiss mm-hmm. built kind of custom vehicle that's been doing this as well, which is like a they built a, a vehicle that was electric and a motorbike, but they had to use outriggers. Right. When it came to a stop sign, they had little outrigger wheels that would pop down and like keep it balanced. But you don't do that. 
you you have you use gyroscopes. So talk me through that part because that's the madness, man. Like that's the that's the part that seems totally crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, it was kind of a mistake. Uh, it was a happy mistake. That's what they call it in art and design. You know, but I'm doing car building, and uh, I confused what a gyro was of uh, back in 2003 with the Segway gyro was. Uh, you know, the media kind of like blurred the lines with that. That's an IMU or three or axis or actually a five axis uh, accelerometer orientation um, sensor. I was like obsessed with tops. As a kid, I had this one specific top that you could hand, and that was actually a gyro. And when you rotate that top in your hand or that gyro in your hand, you feel the orthogonal forces. So uh, that in industry, uh, mostly space industry, which is where these gyros um, came from, they're called control moment gyros. It comes from the astronautics or satellite industry for um, Earth observation. It's a um, it's a relatively esoteric technology that I just kind of stumbled into. I know what it is now. Basically, it's a big flywheel that's gimbaled, or it's a rotor that's in a, a housing, and that housing basically processes, and it creates an orthogonal force um, or torque at a given moment. And basically, we use that in the orientation of the roll axis. And, you know, uh, that's just a terrestrial application for control moment gyros. Usually they're in satellites like Earth observation satellites or the spy satellite industry. That's apparently where it's used most. So it's pretty difficult to find the engineers uh, for that. And so just so I I can get it. So they're used in satellites Mm -hmm. because when you are in space, you can affect, you want to be able to orient the satellite in a particular direction. So you're wanting to like spin it up and then say like, I'm going to get it to this and then be able to like orient yeah, the satellite uh, in this direction and in, in a zero gravity environment. Yeah, so I, I don't actually know a ton uh, because it's a technically a felony uh, to talk about the satellite, uh, which is what my engineers have told me, and I believe them. Yeah, yeah. You know, but usually these satellites have like twelve to twenty something gyros, um, like four like four arrays of like four. I don't know actually. I I can't actually tell talk intellectual uh, very intelligently about the topic. But they are used, control moment gyros are the most efficient way to orientate an Earth observation satellite quickly and effectively uh, and accurately. And it's a lot better than a reaction wheel, which is another type of gyro attitude control device. But, you know, we're just trying to make a simple version for consumers. Uh, so we've taken that. Totally. So you, yeah, so you wanted to take that tech and put it into a vehicle, which is like, and interesting. So what that enables, right, as far as I understand it, is that it allows you to have, you can take the vehicle and you can keep it upright while it's a motorbike without needing to have anything to stabilize it, if it works correctly. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a good way to characterize our vehicle is it's really just a robot. It's semi-autonomous. It does all the balancing for you, but the driving you do yourself. And uh, it keeps the, ba- the vehicle balanced, not just like on the road, you know, while it tilts and leans into a turn it's all done autonomously it's a robot working for you on your balance as you turn the steering wheel it'll lean into a turn given the speed and the trim condition you can recover on ice it's pretty wild and um, it's basically a safe motorcycle it takes all the complexity out of it and uh, for a two-wheeler which is hyper efficient and makes it accessible Uh, so i think that's really it's the most spatially efficient, pretty tech heavy. It's a very simple mechanical vehicle architecture, but uh, the controls for it are pr- pretty, 
I can, I can tell you very complex and I'm super glad and very grateful that we have finally cracked the code on it. And, uh, we've, you know, we filed the patent on that and that's been pretty fun. So, yeah. Awesome. So the, obviously you're trying to build a vehicle, like you've been trying to build a vehicle for a long time. Like this is, this has been a very challenging period. And, and I'd love to, because I think there's going to be a whole bunch of people who listen to this who maybe like me put in a pre-order and haven't had the benefit of being able to talk to you for the last couple of months. Um, sure. Yeah. Who, who want to know a little bit about what happened. Because I think that, you know, there, there was a, there's a perception out there. I think, you know, it, it's just one of these things, right? That like, oh, Lit Motors was trying to build this thing and it's another company that's, that's uh, ended up with some vaporware that isn't, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't shipped. And so I want to understand a bit more about the journey that you've been on because i think that is you know when i got to the place that i've got to which is like i thought wow this is like if this works this is going to be such a big deal and i and i wanted to like help you guys and invest and, and help and uh, advise and stuff i've got to that place now but i also want others to understand why that that's the case because i think it's such a, a crazy and amazing story that you've been on for the last 10 years or actually longer but let, let's start in 2010 2009 2010 2011 so you clearly okay. had like, you'd got to the place where you designed, you said, hey, gyroscopes are in this vehicle, I can make a kind of micro car that's going to be compelling. Yeah. Talk me through what you, where, where was that? Like you were in San Francisco, it's 2011, 2012. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I could start back when I was at RISD. And okay, actually let's start there. Yeah, yeah, you tell me the story. Good, go for it. You want, okay. So I had met Robin Chase, uh, the founder of Zipcar, who introduced, who I told her I wanted to start a car company. And she's like, Oh my gosh, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Robin's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love also, Robin. She's, yeah. she's still a very good friend. Good friend. I used to mine data for her on the census and DOT websites. And I don't know, we just kind of became friends because we're ultra nerdy and uh, on the transportation on topic. And um, so she introduced me to Jay Rogers, uh, who started Local Motors. And yep. I interned for them because I was the only guy that they had met who had built a biodiesel Land Rover or two of them on his own. You know, interned for them, uh, did, some, did a, a summer with, at MIT, uh, VDS, Vehicle Design Summit in Torino. Uh, that was interesting. And then eventually went back to RISD and met John Maida, who introduced me to Saul Griffith who had started a wind power company at the time. And, you know, he was busy, blew me off, but eventually I convinced him to give me an internship. And I went to San Francisco. And So did you, um, was, did you go and work at Otherlab or did you work at Makani at the time? I Actually, it was Makani. It was actually the smart geometry lab section. And we basically made big balls out of polygons or triangles. It's super smart. I mean, everyone over there is super smart. Uh, it was called yeah. Squid Labs at the time. So, um, yeah, yeah for folks who haven't yeah. heard of this, by the way, if you haven't heard of Soul Griffith and other lab, they are like the yeah, ultimate, like, it's, it's like, uh, the kind of like the Q lab and James Bond or whatever. Uh, it gets together yeah. and nerd out and, and then being crazy world saving inventions. It's, yeah, it's, most, uh, you know, things ever. I, I think we're all, we're all philanthropists and we all like want to help the world and we all kind of have that, that we're all mission driven. So I think that's what we all kind of had in the same alignment uh, with our personal and like, career beliefs. And that was cool. And I came out to San Francisco and put my soul into the company and rented out. This is 2009, 2010. Uh, really lucky to rent out like an 8,000 square foot, three-story lab or warehouse in San Francisco in Soma. And, you know, raised a little bit of money from a friend who I didn't know had money and 
you know, saw the cars that I'd built back in 2000 and 2003 to 2005. And, uh, you know, raised some money from him, raised some money from friends and then some family and came down to San Francisco and got incorporated, filed some patents, uh, February, 2010. And, uh, and those patents were on specifically on, um, they were specifically on, uh, two or more wheels two or more gyros, electronic controls, uh, using c- controlling gyroscopes or G's specifically with uh, regenerative braking and then steering and tilting and leaning a vehicle that is energy agnostic. And really it's, it's about the architecture and the platform of the vehicle. I would, one way I'd characterize this vehicle that we're, we've been building is, you know, it's like the Ford Model T of the 21st century. It yeah. has a lot of iPhone disruptive, you know, not to sound cheesy, but I would say it kind of fits that bill like perfectly to like a Clay Christensen definition. So, um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, raised the money, built, we first got tested about like, can you actually engineer something? So I built a a scooter, which was for 12 grand, (laughs) which was crazy. Um, Was that the Kubo? That is the first folding version of the Kubo. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that, you know, we can talk about later, but, um, yeah, built that and, uh, presented that at, uh, that summer, 2000, August, 2010. And that was our first advisor with John Kumi, a uh, very cool dude. And, uh, with talking with Saul and talking with, you know, Robin the whole time and, you know, we raised a couple hundred thousand dollars and then we went to kind of look into the H point and the human factors of how to build this vehicle. I hired a designer straight out of school. Uh, we worked with TJ for a while and that was fun and started building small gyros. And that was kind of like the, that was like V2 of our first gyro build. So and I just want to go back to it. So when did you get the insight about the gyros that you could put them in a car? Like when did that happen? That was a concept uh, in 2003 or four. Uh, I had a, uh, I was building these land. I used to be a landowner mechanic. I dropped out of Reed college. I was like, you know, the, uh, the counselor was like, Daniel, what do you really want to do? And I was like, mm-hmm. I want to figure out how cars work. And so he's like, well, you should go do that. So I went and like, I dropped out of Reed and then, uh, which, uh, to my parents' dismay, uh, don't ever do that. If you're, uh, you know. Uh, if you're in an Asian family dropping out of school, it's not cool. Uh, but yeah, and I kind of begged to become a junior mechanic. And I later got uh, went to an AC certification course for like uh, like automatic transmissions and crazy stuff. And, um, you know, uh, started learning how to build cars from there. But um, yeah, I didn't have the idea. Uh, so I, I build Land Rovers and stuff like that. I learned how to do that after my travels. And uh, But I was in an accident a build accident. Uh, that's where I kind of like took a step back from Land Rovers and thought like, uh, why am I building this SUV? Because it was really kind of a, a middle finger to GM and, uh, you know, Ford and, you know, it's 2000 and like, uh, this is 2003 when like the Hummers were coming out, they're gas guzzlers. So I was kind of having this rebellious moment that turned into building two cars that were, you know, very like heavily like European inspired. And, uh, you know, they had 20 mile, 28 miles per gallon is all time four wheel drive aerodynamics of a brick, but it was pretty light. You'd been building these, you were trying to build these things. They nearly dropped on you and you thought, 
I'm going to try and work out. Yeah. How it why am I building it? Yeah. Why are you going to, why wouldn't you build something lighter? I think that was the, that was the part of it. Yeah, that was, that was, um, you know, the, you know, if you look around, uh, 72% of people drive alone. So just like at the time it looked like 50, 50% of people were driving alone. So I'm just trying to be efficient all the time, just kind of having a science background and, um, uh, why are, why is there a 4,000 pound vehicle 50% of the time being driven alone? It's actually like 86% of the time in California is being driven alone in, Mm -hmm. uh, Europe. Uh, India and China, 50% of all car, car drivers drive alone, which is a crazy amount of like excess capacity for a 4,000 pound vehicle, like for, like the energy that takes push that for only one person. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a major contributor to um, traffic. So uh, I thought about these other things. Yeah, totally. I get it. It's, so, a, it's a it's a big lexicon of, of, of problems. So, you know, we're um, I decided to cut the car in half at that point. And uh, why not uh, have a self-balancing two-wheeled, uh, two-passenger, you know, a driver and a passenger vehicle. So, sounds simple. And so, totally, totally. And so, fast forward, you, you've worked out, it's like, okay, I have to work out, I'm going to take these guys, I'm going to put them into this vehicle. 2009, 2010, you start, you've got yourself a, a, an office in, in San Francisco. And you start trying to build this thing, right? You get a you get a designer. Take me through that part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, we got a designer, and we figured out the human factors and some basic shapes of what it would look like. And we, uh, you know, I met Steve Jurvetson at a conference, uh, who I didn't realize was on the board of Tesla. And he his feedback to me was like, well, you know, this thing that you want to build is going to cost like thirteen million, and it's super tech heavy. You know, I don't know where you can find these patrol engineers. Why don't you just try to build a cheap version, like an MVP, and test mm. the market? So I was like, hmm, I know how to build prototypes that are models and fake. And, uh, you know, I learned that at RISD in, in the modeling class. And um, so we did that. So me and TJ did that. Uh, we talked to Adam uh, Gorley at Wild Factory, and uh, they built the Tron light cycle as a movie prop. Very lucky to get that introduction. There's a lot of luck uh, that that happens yeah. throughout the career. It's not all just me. I mean, I would like to say it's me, but um, you know, I'm I'm just wildly grateful to to have an opportunity. And you know, uh, so we built one uh, that was you know a pretty expensive prototype, 180k almost is what it came out to be. And we tested the market. We did a qualitative clinic. Uh, we found out that 15.7% of people who came into our qualitative clinic, it's kind of like a simulated showroom, would put down 250 bucks on the spot, uh, which I, apparently is a really high conversion rate. So uh, that was cool. Harvard got word of that and wrote a case study on us over at HBS. So you can look that up on HBR and Lit Motors. And uh, basically, we reduced our market liability just to show that, like, hey, this crazy concept that a lot of people don't. If this thing really, exists, people will probably buy it. There's some, the liability is has been reduced because it's a $1.1 yeah. trillion dollar market. It's a huge market. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, well, most, and, most people drive alone, right? And most people do relatively short trips. If there was a vehicle that existed that was like, hey, it's like a car, but it's, and it's enclosed and it, you drive it with a steering wheel and you're safe, but it's actually smaller and in yeah. some ways more fun. Like, would you, yeah. would you be interested in that? And that's the thing that I, I kind of keep on coming back to. It's like every time I show people pictures of this thing, mm-hmm. uh, folks are like, oh, yeah, I totally want one of those. Like, that would be an awesome vehicle. It's a second car. Right. Or as a, you know, it's like, 
most of the time I drive alone or I have one other person I can handle, I could handle having something like this, you know, I'd be interested. Right. In yeah. And, you know, so that's, I think that's a really great way just to get some really like basic marketing data, but for them to like walk up to it, see it in it's like, you know, in full scale, uh, sit in it, feel like kind of like a, like a science experiment, kind of like a demo of what a gyro feels like and how it's stable. That's a whole nother thing. And, uh, you know, we compared it to a Ducati monster. We had to buy a Ducati. Oh, it's horrible. And, um, you know, we compared them to each other and that comparison, uh, we could see like, what do you think, what would you be more interested in buying? And what do you think is more safe? What kind of like fits into your lifestyle? And that was usually the point where they would put money down or they'd say, Hey, I need to get my wife or my, uh, you know, my partner to come in and test it out. So we're like, right, but makes sense, you know, or, you know, I need to drive it. Right. That's very So reasonable. this is 15% conversion just on seeing the vehicle in a foam model or like not a foam model, but like a plastic, you know, like a, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, it was, it was fiberglass, uh, foam core, Bondo and plywood. And it was right. beautiful, yeah. but it looked, yeah, I've, actually I've seen it in 2019. I came in, uh, you know, you showed it to me in the garage. It is, it is actually very cool to see. So again, yeah. right, like this is a, a totally different kind of vehicle. This is the part that I kind of keep coming back to is like, nobody else has really ever seen something on this. So it's a hard thing to sell or the hard thing to kind of work out how to take to market. Anyhow, look, I'm conscious of time and I, and I there's so much more to the story that I, I, want, I want to be able to right. tell. So, okay. So you launched pre-orders in 2013. You, you had a, enough of a model to show about this. You know, you, you clearly had a lot of good press as well. You were on the front page of the New York Times and all that sort of stuff with some of the prototypes. But, you know, you launched pre-orders and clearly that went okay. You got, you got a bunch of pre-orders with like actual money associated with it. Yeah, we launched our pre-orders in 2011. I think we got like 14. Uh, Vinod Kosla said, that's cute. I, it's nice to see you have so many friends and family. And, <laughs> but, um, you know, we had grew it, uh, with that. We didn't really have very much press at the time. I think it was just CNN and a fair trade company. And I think there was something with Giga, which was really cool, but, uh, we had about like a hundred and something pre-orders. I think, uh, when we were on the front page of the New York times in October, I think it was like 13th, uh, you know, 20, 2012. And, uh, that pretty much doubled our pre-orders almost overnight. I think over like, uh, a couple months we got to 500 from a hundred, uh, it was crazy. And, um, that just created this huge press tsunami. It was wild. So we got a lot of press and we got a lot of attention. Uh, basically every OEM, uh, in the Valley came to say hi. That was where we had first met, uh, BMW and Ford, but we talked to everyone. Uh, it was pretty wild. And we're talking with someone uh, in India who said that this was the holy grail of transportation uh, from an Indian perspective. Uh, so, you know, that is, it's not just for America. It's not just for Europe. I think those are great markets for us, but also like India, China, Korea, Japan, where there's, uh, you know, high congestion in the urban setting. I think, uh, you know, as an intra-urban commuter or inner-urban commuter, you know, I think this is the perfect vehicle. Mm. And uh, so clearly like you made progress on the pre-orders and then, yeah. And the part that I obviously want to get to is like you, you were making good progress on, on actually getting towards production. Like I put in a pre-order in 2013 and it was like, yeah. you know, you, you're like, okay, cool. We, we think we're going to be able to do this. Um, there's things we have to yeah. resolve around the gyro control and all that sort of stuff to be able to right. make the vehicle work. But, you know, 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, at that point, uh, that summer, I had met Eve Bahar and uh, John Dewar. I met John Dewar a couple of times, but I met Eve Bahar and Tony Fidal at uh, Aspen Ideas Festivals in 2013. This is really kind of where the story takes off. And Eve, uh, Eve's awesome. He's awesome. There's no doubt about it. And him and some friends invested in our company and got us to a point where we grew from 11 to 28 full-time and 10 consultants. And we were basically building two of three prototypes or one of three prototypes that would get to production. And we were basically raising and building for production. It was about like, you know, a couple, like a couple million and, uh, you know, I'm pretty scrappy, so I get stuff done. And uh, we had some really good traction. I thought we had generally a good team to, to completely reduce the risk. A ton of PhDs and one tenured professor. And I mean, it was, a, you know, a 38-person company and for about a good nine months. And uh, we built a prototype. Uh, we had uh, three billionaires on our cap table at that point, some pretty high net worth individuals that you would recognize. Uh, and then we went out to an Asian country with the prototype to uh, give a demo uh, to another billionaire CEO. And uh, that was interesting. Uh, it was really cold in December. And uh, we, we drove this prototype around. It was a fully engineered prototype. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. And uh, we talked. We're going to meet at CES, and then we're going to meet again. At, you know, after the Chinese New Year, and uh, and then I went on a motorcycle ride uh, over a track. That's how I kind of blow off steam. That's how I relax. And uh, yeah, it was the first day of the year, uh, track day of the year. I only ride motorcycles on the track. Uh, it was March fourteenth, uh, two thousand fifteen, and. I went out and, uh, you know, kind of took it slow. First ride out, went around the track and, you know, uh, caught up to this guy from turn four to turn five and uh, rode off the track at like 70 miles an hour to avoid hitting him. Mm -hmm. And yeah, hit some sandbags going pretty fast. And I don't really remember a ton of it, but uh, it was pretty catastrophic. I've never been hospitalized before. I just completely broke my legs. I had a uh, hairline break on my calcaneus, and then there's a, a third metatarsal fracture, my systemic joint on uh, my right side, uh, ankle uh, was also fractured or ruptured, uh, my mele malleolus was also fractured, uh, mid-calf fibula break, uh, ruptured ACL, this is on the right side, and then on the left side, you know, my hip, uh, basically, uh, my hip totally got destroyed. Um, the, the neck of my femur was fractured and then, you know, uh, broken ribs and then are, you know, a fractured, uh, pinky and kind of a pretty hard bonk on the old noggin. Uh, I'm lucky that like the real money makers still like mm -hmm. intact. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that was uh, pretty traumatic and, uh, it, you know, the summary of it was I was out for four and a half, five years, at least orthopedically. And I was in and out of a wheelchair, I don't know, like six, seven, eight times. I had uh, eight pretty invasive corrective surgeries. Uh, two of them led to a hip, a total uh, a hip replacement and a complete ankle replacement. So my hip and my ankle are all titanium 
and ultra uh, ultra high molecular weight polyethylene. Because that part is like, you know, I think when we talk about, I can imagine four or five years when you had been previously head of a 40 person company or 38 person company, you're, you know, like that was the part that I, I saw. Like we, we got an update as folks who had pre-orders and it just said, you know, Danny's been in an accident and, and, um, and then it kind of went quiet and like, and I didn't hear anything from you guys for, for a long time. And I, to be honest, I, I thought with you went the company and, um, so, but that clearly wasn't the case. So can you talk me through like that recovery was, I imagine excruciating. I, I don't know. I've never been in that situation, but I just, you know, like hats off to you for anybody who's gone through that and managed to come out the other side and be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a very few people go through something like that. I guess like the, the summary of it is that uh, you're constantly in pain. You're constantly scared to walk. You're bedridden the majority of the time, and you're always kind of waiting for the next surgery or how you're going to heal. You know, it's kind of hard to raise money during that time. Uh, so yeah, I get that. Yeah, I ain't running company, so I had to let go of almost everyone, and that was really hard. And not having mobility or freedom, I think we you know we take for granted just the the gift of the body that we are given at birth, and um, yeah, you know, losing your income, losing almost losing your career, losing freedom, losing financial freedom or in, uh, independence losing your own identity and of creating value going from CEO to like basically a lump. And then, you know, that has a lot of psychological stuff, even going out dating is really hard. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, girlfriend dumped me at the time that was rough. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, friends and family also kind of get bored and don't understand what you're going through and they everyone reacts to trauma differently but yeah uh you know i wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy uh i wouldn't uh it yeah i think there are some there are some silver linings you could you could take away from it um it gave me a really deep place of empathy i think that's you know i think it's a good thing but at the same time no one really understands that depth of empathy and it's kind of useless in a in a, in a weird way but, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, it was, uh, it was really traumatic and I'm really grateful. I learned to become incredibly resilient and learn to self heal and, you know, the human condition, you know, when you talk about people like, you know, in Africa or wherever, some third world country where they're happy all the time, it's cause they're grateful. Like I get that. And, you know, I, I get the, the difference of if you survive something, you know, coming back from a war or something like that. And, you know, everyone is, you know, in civilization is kind of happy and, you know, you just went through something different and it separates, you know, your reality of the depth and the, and the, and the scope of it. And, uh, you know, to come back into something, it's a, it's a stark reality and perception that I guess I'm grateful to have, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it's, it's very, it's very isolating at the same time, but so is starting a car company. So I know yes, what's new. So, so like, you know, thank you. Cause I also know that this isn't the sure. easiest thing to talk about. So, you know, the, the one part that kind of amazed me was when I saw that you guys, you know, I, I saw you go in 20, I met you in 2019. And at that point you'd, you'd had David join the team. So can you talk me through how, you know, you're obviously in recovery and this sort of stuff, but you know, you have, uh, you somehow managed to keep going and 
and you came across David and 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 kept on working on that. Can you talk me through that part? Because David's in it. David, by the way, an amazing like he's he quite yeah. an incredible engineer. Uh, yeah, David. I you know I, I grew up Catholic and you know Presbyterian and uh, yeah. If there is a God, uh, you know David is God's gift to from at least an engineering standpoint to humanity. And um, I met David uh, in 2015. I was right before I was going to get my hip replaced. And um, the CTO of NASA, former CTO, Mason Peck, who's a college professor as well um, at Cornell, you know, he was an advisor of our company. And he heard about the accident and was like, hey, I have someone who might be able to solve your controls problem for the gyroscope and, you know, this trestle application. And, uh, you know, let me give you his number and why don't you give him a call? And so I called him and I was just laying in bed and called Dave and we kind of hit it off after a couple hours of talking about the controls problem. It's a complex one. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to unpack that very, very particularly as well. Like there's a control problem in the sense of if you're trying to do something, you're trying to keep a bike vertically or like balanced, but balanced. Yeah. Find that trim condition. Nobody had really ever done that level of control on a terrestrial application. Yeah. So what's really hard about what we're doing is, um, so there's a mathematics, it's a new vehicle, like it's completely new and no one's ever done this before, at least mathematically. And every robot or every vehicle that we know of today, helicopters, cars, motorcycles, satellites, you know, warships, you know, uh, F-22 fighters, F-35s, missiles, anything like that has any kind of electronic control has this thing called a vehicle model and a vehicle model is a mathematic model of an object and that object might have different moving parts like suspension or wings or a rotor and those things all have to be mathematically modeled and all these you know in like the dod or or whatever um, the automotive industry there's a vehicle model for all these vehicles and there's a legacy model that most engineers or controls engineers can fall back on or get access to somehow. We didn't even have the luxury to getting access to one because this has never been built before. And, you know, Dynamicists, which is the name of this type of engineering, Dynamicists are kind of a rare breed in engineering just because there hasn't been a new vehicle done in decades. And there's always some legacy vehicle model to build off of. Uh, so, Taking like a satellite-like technology on a tr- in a terrestrial application, which is I'm actually like Dave's the one who actually like, said this, but um, you know was really was really intriguing, and I think that's what brought Dave on, and he joined the company shortly after, and you know he single-handedly did what nine controls engineers and dynamicists couldn't do in nine months, uh, and he did it on, in three on his own, and eventually he basically reduced our technical risk and we filed over, uh, he did this over like three years on his own and we filed new patents based off of it. And uh, it's a continuation, but we're pretty good patent wise until 2037. And I mean, he's phenomenal. Like his background. Uh, yeah. Is, talk through his background. Cause I think that's the very interesting part, right? Yeah, uh, he's like three or four engineers in one. Uh, and then that's a really great foundation for controls and dynamics. Um, he started off at Purdue, you know, 
he, he's a bit older now, but, uh, you know, still very, very much intact. And he started off in Purdue as an electrical engineer. He got his master's, I think, in mechanical and then controls. And then later went off straight into industry and worked at a lot of companies that were a lot of interesting problems that were all DOD and eventually ended up at uh, Honeywell through multiple acquisitions and later become a principal fellow at Honeywell. And really the last part of his career was really like 10, 15 plus years just working on control moment gyros. And if you look up control moment gyros on Wikipedia, he is the only engineer listed on that whole article because he solved a pretty interesting polarity problem that control moment gyros have with satellites. And, you know, these are... Pretty expensive satellites, Um, you know, they're a billion plus, but there's a certain amount of responsibility that comes along with that type of engineer and, uh, you know, being a principal fellow there at uh, at Honeywell for quite a while, he co-authored a seminal paper on how to solve the singularity. And, uh, you know, he has 20 patents with an industry for satellite controls and hexafluoride missiles and all this crazy mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, the story is... Uh, he also he did seen. like missile, uh, like uh, engine engine controls as well. He did, like, When I talked to him, he, he, he was doing like jet engine controls and, and yeah. stuff in the past. And so it's this amazing, he's in some ways, he's like, you know, as you say, uh, if God was, uh, you know, if we believe in God, that he would be the sort of person who would like... If you, you know, do, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, then, and then he would be like, hey, I can do, I can do them. I know how to do the gyro stuff. I know how to do the control engineering stuff to effectively make the gyro part of it work. Because I think that's the, mm-hmm. from, for, you know, for, if you look at those early prototypes of, of the videos and stuff, if you push right. the vehicle, it was, it was rebalancing itself, but it took time. And, and it was, right. um, you know, the, the, the amount of movement that it required and, and things like that. It's like, clearly you had a little bit of stuff to sort out, which I'm sure you probably would have sorted out. But in the meantime, Dave turns up while you're injured and, and uh, helps you solve these things. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, you know, you could say he saved me because it was, you know, it's, it, I figured out it was a pretty hard problem. Uh, it's a really small industry of these types of engineers, the spy satellite industry. Like you can't find that in like the Valley, actually none of the engineers that are on the team now you can find in the Valley. And so I worked with him, you know, we talked like a couple times a week, a couple hours a day, uh, you know, a time and we filed seven patents together. Um, mm-hmm. he, he could easily be the co-CTO mm-hmm. and there was a patent that we filed in 2017 that really kind of reinvigorated me about thinking about like what the max performance of this vehicle could be. And that kind of reignited stuff. I'm really lucky that we have a core group of six investors who kept the company afloat, kept the lights on, kept the patent portfolio alive, uh, which is very, very big and very strong now. You know, they're very patent forward investors and they realize the type of patent that we were filing is incredibly rare. You know, that was a good three and a half years until I got my ankle replaced. You know, you know, I survived. It wasn't pretty, but I got through it and, you know, the company got stronger. We were able to just focus on the core tech and we had like two or three, two employees, one employee really. And some consultants who, you know, work for shares and, and an IOU and were really inspired and really loved the tech. And we were able to really kind of grow off of that. So, you know, my hat's off so you to Mason, to, my hat's off to Dave. Totally. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, take us through 2019, you, you, you were sort of 
finally starting to get early 2020, late 2019, start of 2020, you're starting to finally get better. Yeah. You've been through your operations. You're at the point now where you've got David. He's managed to solve a bunch of these problems for you. And you're like, okay, cool. I think, you know, do you think you could, now, now knowing this, do you think you could have tried to actually build the vehicle in 2015? Would it have worked no. if you'd actually tried to build it? Right. I see. No. But you didn't know that at the no. time. No. Uh, it was a risk. It was a technical risk. And that's why in startups, you know, you start off with, is the founder likable? Is the founder coach, you know, coachable? Great. Can you reduce the technical risk? Are there patents? Great. Is there a market? Awesome. Nice. Great. You know, can you build the executive team? Great. Awesome. You know, can you expand? Is you know, blah, 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 blah. That's why that tech thing is pretty early, because the tech is a you know huge component of it. So, you know, 2015, you know, we had we had probably the best tenured professor that I knew of that was, you know, that could probably try to take a good shot at it. She couldn't do it. We were talking to Mason. Mason was like, I know some people, but in academia, it's not going to happen. Uh, it might take five, this six is years. Mason, and, who, was the, who was at NASA? Yeah, yeah. The former CTO yeah. and, you know, professor at Cornell. And, you know, but it wasn't until Mason made the introduction to someone in industry, David, uh, that's really where things changed. And even Dave looking at it was like, oh, wow, this is a hard problem. Like, right. I that, know. Maybe actually, like, yeah, that was David's thing. When I, when I talked to David about this and David was like, this just felt like a really naughty problem. Like this was <laughs> <you know? laughs> like some people just, yeah. get, you know, some people who you come across and you're like, wow, you're really, you and I have very different definitions of fun, but you know, this is, right. this is, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad that you exist. And, uh, this is, this is really cool. Okay. So, right. So we take us through 2019, 2020. I met you in early 20, 2019, and at that point, you'd been, as you say, you'd found these investors who were like, we're going to keep the lights on. What you're working on is crazy enough and like big enough if it works that, um, you know, we, we want to make it. Uh, we want to keep going. So at that point, I think, yeah, soon after that, you know, talk, talk me through what happened soon after that. Yeah, um, 2019. So uh, we had this like really disgruntled investor. I understand why. Uh, and so... Yeah, we we got our patents back. It was this really dumb lawsuit. I just wasn't in town at the time, and uh, you know, made sure that investor. Uh, it's on Wikipedia. It's really obnoxious, but you know, my job as the CEO is to make investors happy. I did. I gave him return. It was positive. He didn't know what we had going on, and uh, you know, I recovered from my ankle replacement. That was after Dave filed his patent that reduced technical risk. Like we knew what was what was wrong and how to get oil and water play together because uh, the mm-hmm. steering system and the gyros don't like each other. Um, but we figured out how them how to make them share basically the vehicle, and um, yeah. uh, that was a big spur for me. And so I got my ankle replaced, and uh, you know it was it was a hard decision. Uh, but I got it done. I found someone cool to do it. Uh, hats off to Dr. DiOrio at Duke. And then I went out fundraising with a friend of mine. Uh, it's kind of a new CMO, James Robinson. It's a very smart guy. And uh, we were kind of looking uh, at the automotive industry at the time in 2019. You know, I went to like Kleiner, went to SoftBank, talked to Sequoia. And, you know, the, the, the market had started to mature at that time because you knew you had Cruz's exit and uh, that really blew stuff up on the autonomous side. And um, yeah, I went out. I didn't really like kind of the, 
it was really positive for us. But I know that one of the things that kills a company, an automotive startup, it's not necessarily money. That is, it's a tool. Money is a tool. But you really got to have the right people and to get that synergy, and you got to find the right uh, board member as well. And uh, you know, I wasn't really feeling it in early 2019. And um, you know, summer came along, and I met someone. Uh, that I met in 2016 uh, during uh, we had an acquisition phase where some companies were looking at us for an acquisition and uh, that kind of spurred jump started our relationship with them and uh, basically to backtrack a little bit 2016 2017 before my ankle started to fail uh, everyone no one wanted to reinvest in us and so I kind of had to get my ankle replaced and then come back two years later in 2019 when I was healthy, all of a sudden it blew up again. And uh, it's like, you know, Danny's like, you know, a better founder's good. They've, you know, reduced their technical risk apparently. And then we started, you know, I'm always interested in talking to OEMs that OEMs talk my language, I guess that's the best way to put it. And we think about the same things and started talking to an OEM that, took us out to Germany and we went and did some due diligence and technical and market product portfolio. And then we did a budgeting workshop and came back home, put together the budget together. This is 2019 to 2020. And yeah, kind of got restarted and uh, we are gonna got a term sheet and that was interesting. It's a different type of term sheet that I'm used to, but that's how they do it. And that's part of our negotiation. And then... And that then was for an acquisition or for an investment? It was actually for a partnership. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, they, they talk about revenue share and licensing. And basically the terms of it were, uh, you give us your patents and we'll give you X amount of money. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting place to start. And uh, mm. But we were talking about a partnership being a sub-brand. You know, yep. it makes sense to reduce the risk of, you know, if this is this new technology and that company was going off into the EV world already. They were going to go big into EVs. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. I could see that coming uh, down the horizon and, you know, yeah. And then I went back out there. So this was in, a large, if not one of the largest OEMs in, in Germany, who you can't name. but I Who think. I can't name. Yeah, we're still technically, yes. I have an NDA with them and, you know, you know, trust is an important thing, at least at my level in the industry. And some things, yeah, some things get in the way, like a motorcycle accident. So I have to apologize to our community for that. Uh, I did have a lot of control over that. So, yep. but, uh, you know, we're definitely back. Yeah, yeah we so talked to them. So, yeah, so you take, so you get, you managed to get, obviously, a very large European company to, to go down a fair amount of technical due diligence with you. Look it was crazy. This was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the pandemic hit and when I was out in, let's say, southern Germany and, you know, Italy closed their borders when I was there and we uh, Trump closed the borders. So I decided it was we all agreed it was best for me to go back home until everything just blew over. And we kept working remotely for about what turned out to be a year and a half, at least once or twice a month, easily, sometimes Sometimes a whole week we would work together when we had a presentation and we were just waiting for the pandemic to blow over. And uh, I don't know, 
it was interesting. Uh, I learned a lot from the experience. Uh, they couldn't get through our patents, which was interesting. That was uh, in the sense uh, that they couldn't get through them, as in they couldn't work out a way to reverse engineer their way back to a solution without having to use you. Right. Okay. okay. Well, they didn't so have David wiki- Bailey. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so like you've managed to, you know, you, you like clearly went down that road with them and, and I, I don't know who that company was, uh, but I do, I do note that the person that you have subsequently hired was Stefan who, who used to run the, well, he ran the Audi e-tron GT development concept car program for Audi. Yeah. Yeah, we're really lucky. Uh, you know, I, we had a couple of champions internally. And after, you know, about a year and a half of, of them also getting kind of dragged around and being like, hey, this concept makes a ton of sense. Uh, they eventually decide to leave and uh, they joined our team. So, uh, you know, one name is Volker. I'm really glad to have him on the team. Uh, he's been a really great kind of like, board advisor or kind of high level advisor you know i, I think there's more to that as a board member and and then we brought on tell a little bit more about volker what was volker's role uh previous to, to joining you as on the board yeah he was um you know he worked at vw uh he i think he was there for like 20 something years uh in, in the group and he was part of the xl1 project where they went to serial production for that he worked in Mike martin Winterkorn's office the CEO responsible for Dieselgate, but uh, you know a lot of lot of connections there. Uh, Volker eventually went to another company, a luxury brand within the VW Group, and ran their innovation center, which basically came out with all the new concepts or vehicles for the future for that luxury brands line. And yeah, and uh, befriended me in 2016. Uh, that's when we first met. And because I was looking for an acquisition, I was in pretty bad shape and then we met up later and uh yeah pretty exciting and then now he's on our team so that's been pretty amazing so uh he's been helpful and uh you know he introduced me to stefan who i had met in 2019 and uh didn't really know who he was stefan's pretty amazing i know who he is now but yeah he was ahead of the the flagship, the development over the flagship model in 2018, which went into production in 2020, And I'm happy to have him on our team full time. He's been amazing. So, uh, you know, car nerds jiving with car nerds. And I think they similarly, right. So, so, you know, I, I've been invited along to one of your meeting greets with the team on zoom and, the one thing that really struck me about Stefan and both Stefan and Volker, when you ask them, you know, clearly you've had a lot of experience in inside of the the OEM machinery working on this. Why are you interested to come and work for some kind of random upstart uh, company trying to do this crazy idea of putting gyros into a single seater vehicle motorbike in California? And they were like, well, this is this you very rarely get to an opportunity in your career to work on something that feels as potentially massive as this. So I'm conscious of time. This is, again, I could talk for hours with you about this, but I do want to go through the, you know, so you're here now, right? So you've got this amazing team of folks that you've, you've hired now. And like, you're at the point where you've obviously fundraised a bit and that you're, you're looking to go and build a couple of these vehicles or a vehicle to be able to show that this actually, you've gone from like, hey, we, we you know, back in 2015 was the last time that you kind of commissioned an, an, uh, an engineering prototype. 
through to now, you've obviously made a huge amount of progress on the technical side to be able to make these things things. What is that next vehicle going to look like? And what is the plan for route to market post, post that? Yeah, uh, you know, we're the next vehicle is going to be very cool. Uh, it's going to be very, it's not going to be too futuristic, I think, but it's going to be to a higher quality of design, you know, that uh, I think anyone's in our community has seen before. We have access to this German cottage industry of prototyping for show car development and beta prototype development. And we do have this amazing team and the team are in their industry experts. Uh, so, you know, like Dave is obviously an industry expert in gyro controls and vehicle dynamics. He's reduced our technical risk. Um, Mike is uh, the head of uh, systems engineering uh, for embedded controls for the hypersonic missile program at Raytheon. He's been there for quite a while. Sorry, and who's Mike again? Mike is the, he's another gyro engineer or controls? Yeah, Mike, no, Mike Bailey's, you know, a firmware guy, you know, to say it lightly. And used to, he's a prototyper. Uh, but a high-level prototyper with a great amount of responsibility for robustness at like an ISO 9001 or higher uh, standard. And um, he joined the team in 2016, and he's been amazing. So we have him, and then we have Gary Gensler, who builds gyros, like hardware gyros for Honeywell. He's been awesome. And then Lou Jackson joined the team as well. He worked at Honeywell underneath Dave. Um, and then we have Volker, and then we have Chefon, and then there's me. And we're kind of the car guys, car guys. Uh, you know, I'm. we're all prototypers, by the way. That's an interesting trend about all of us, but we're all super high-level prototypers. And Volker and Stefan also prototype vehicles. They prototype show cars that are meant for production. So uh, we had a meeting in November, and that meeting in November was called, it's called an SS, SRR, it's Specification or Requirements Review. And basically, we go into the customer needs, and we kind of line that up, what the customer want. And then we have a government regulation kind of like list, figure out what those regulations are. And so um, that's what Stefan and Volker bring is they know or know the specs for NCAP which is a European like homologation for automobiles. And uh, NCAP is like the highest standard in the world for car safety. So um, they're going to be able to include that into our next prototype. Uh, yes, we're building for production. And then you go to technical requirements, and then that feeds into like an engineering requirements. And then that will also, that will kind of, basically they call it an A sample. We're in between an A sample and maybe a B sample, um, like, production prototype. Uh, that's what Stefan and Volker bring to the company. Uh, you know, we got to kind of like, you know, throw a lasso and like wrangle, uh, wrangle like Lou and Gary and Dave and Mike from like hypersonic missile and like, you know, uh, satellite world and bring them down to, you know, basically a, a not as robust, you know, you know, 30 year service plan. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. we have like a one to two year, three year service plan. So a lot simpler, um, mm -hmm. but you know, I know they can do it, but it's a really dynamic team that is full of industry experts. We couldn't get in Silicon Valley. I wish we could, but we happened, we had to go to like Arizona and then we had to go to Bavaria, uh, to mm -hmm. find these people and, uh, you know, they know how to get stuff done and the network is there. So we're looking to build, a. A pretty amazing prototype uh hopefully in about a year and a half or something like that and then go into production 
maybe a year afterwards or something like that. We'll see. I mean, this is new to me. I, this is a very common thing to do over at that German luxury brand uh, mm-hmm. or the other larger company in Berlin. You know, that's just kind of like for them, it's just like, you know, they would like to get to serial production. I never, never heard of that uh, phrase. But serial production is uh, to build a prototype car or vehicle for uh, 10 to 100,000 units produced per year. They call it a slice. That's one slice. And, you know, some car companies, you don't have 110 slices per year. Mm-hmm. Um, Curious for you, like, so um, obviously you're looking to go to market and, and I know that there'll be folks in here who may have pre-orders and have been following the story of Flip Motors for a long time. Is the aim that you'll be able to satisfy those vehicle pre-orders at, with that one? Is, is, is that the aim, like with, with being able to get them to market? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, absolutely. There's, um, you know, we have you in our database. Uh, so FYI, we are keeping track. And, you know, thank you for reminding us uh, that you're still here. We, we know you're here and are incredibly grateful for your patience. I know it's been hard. It's I'm also just impatient to get into one of these. Um, mm. uh, but, but uh, you know, we're going to work with the contract manufacturer. That's that's the, that's the plan. Uh, we might have another vehicle that might come out before uh, the C1. It's, you know, it's easily two years out. It's going to be uh, the highest quality vehicle that I can think of, at least for this first production run. It's We've got a pretty good, in my head, I've got a pretty good product portfolio matrix that I think can get us across the chasm. I think, you know, we're at a really great place for EVs to kind of take over or at least get introduced when EVs start to plateau a bit and, you know we i think we have a really great offering of you know post covid 19 i think you know people are going to want to commute they're going to want something that differentiates them between you know uh evs uh and general cars i mean just uh you know we only have one tenth the, the uh, you know uh the parts uh that's less energy just to produce the same value prop or the same offering same safety as a car you know all it, we're going to get as close to end cap as we can uh, with airbags and seat belts and a safety cell, um, it might be an aluminum chassis. It might be a steel chassis. It might be a mix mm-hmm. of carbon and steel. I would love that. So yeah, but, um, yeah. So folks who are listening to this, who are probably a little like me and were you know want want the vehicle, it sounds like there's a little bit of time before, and it's just another game of waiting. But the point is that like the company still exists and is still going, and it's not it's not like you stop going for this. For folks who do, because I also know as well that there's you know they might have put down anywhere from five hundred to a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars in pre-order money back in 2013, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just curious for you, you know, like that money's been I understand has been held in in a separate bank account. They can get it back anytime they like. Yeah, you're gonna get a full refund. You'll get a full yeah. refund. I don't think that's a problem. We're probably going to open up our re, uh, our pre-orders again. Uh, we need to get to a goal of 10,000. Uh, 10,000 is where we're net income positive, And that's at serial production uh, with all the tooling in place for serial production for one slice, uh, according to Volker. And I believe them. And uh, they know what they're doing. So, uh, you know, that's, that's out of my wheelhouse. But uh, they're totally. on board. And that would be, in theory, 2024. 2025 i think i don't i don't want to throw i don't want i'm gonna leave that to volker and stefan and you know they're you know the group to to figure out you know that's really i don't want i want to stay in my lane but uh 
No, that's fair. It will be there will be something driving 2023-ish something. Uh and we're gonna, you know, uh we're gonna go around and we're gonna let people uh test it, feel it. Uh definitely 2024 easy. And um uh you're gonna be able to feel it, you know, get excited and talk to your friends about, you know, this is a it's the model T of the 21st century. That's how I see it. It's the real Apple iPhone or smartphone of this generation. It's a cultural moment. This is a once in a century uh, transition from the horse to the horseless carriage or the Model T, uh, or you know the the you know Mercedes if you know if you want to if you're German. And then you know I, I really my hats off to Elon and stuff like that. But you know the, just the basic physics of an EV is difficult. And when you look at resource constraints for lithium ion, it's, you know, it's just not sustainable in the whole life cycle. So we have to go to something that's smaller, more energy efficient, uh, has the same safety, has the same value proposition of a car, but is more exciting, more dynamic, higher performance, and just as safe. You know, uh, we have an autonomous patent on it. But, you know, um, my hat's off to Sergey and the whole autonomous community and, uh, you know, Sebastian. You know, it's it's moonshots are hard, and mm. we're kind of a moonshot, but we're, you know, we're partially autonomous, and uh, you know, I think that's kind of semi-autonomous, semi-robotic, semi, you know, AI. I think is the the way to go, and mm-hmm. you know, we're just trying to find that middle of the road that, and you know, hopefully we inspire a whole new generation. So, totally. I mean, the the one thing that I obviously you're going to build the vehicles. The other thing that I can also say is that as you as you know, you've got 150 patents or something on on the vehicles at this point. Something like that. Like, yeah. You could I I totally see a world in which this gets licensed to particular OEMs that they say, you know, like we we have a world where like you are building EVs and I think that there's going to be a move towards uh like lower smaller EVs and the challenge is going to be what does that look like, right? And so obviously I've had Nimbus on and, and others. I do think it will be a single-seater tilting vehicle that is enclosed. And I, the reason that I say silt- tilting is because it, just merely trying to drive on a standard road without being able to tilt. If you're that narrow, you just won't have any of the benefits. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. It, the vehicle itself will feel really weird and hard. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. It looks yeah. weird. So you want to have something that tilts and is dynamic, but to, to enable that tilting, you have to go, you know, obviously Nimbus tried it with the two wheels at the front and the one at the back. Uh, E-Carver mm-hmm. has tried that with two wheels at the back and one at the front. Um, mm-hmm. Or you have like a city transformer, which has tried to do it, but with wheels that, uh, you know, like they go outwards, they go outwards when you're on highways and then they come in and, and it's a narrow single car when you're, when you're driving around town. But it's, you know, I think someone will nail it in this space. I just think the thing that's really interesting about the, the gyro technology is that it's, if it works, I think it'll work. But I'm just, uh, you know, like there's the, there's the, I know that we can make it work. It's the, will it work when it's out on the road with, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours on it and, and, and we can service it and all that sort of stuff. I know I've asked the question of Stefan. He's like, don't worry, we can solve this. But, uh, you know, it's like, that feels to me like a, a like a multi-touch moment. I remember the first time I saw multi-touch, it was like, that kind of blew my mind of, you know, a way to interact with a computer that wasn't just like, I'm going to type it in or use a mouse. I'm going to type something and use a mouse. It's actually, I can touch the screen and I can do something. And the gyrotech to me strikes me as like a multi-touch moment because it, it allows you to control the tilt however you want. And it's kind of magic. And it looks amazing. Yeah. Like the, the, the idea that you'd have a vehicle roll up to a stoplight and then 
just stay upright, doesn't have to worry about crosswinds, doesn't have, you can control for all of that, uh, is just, yeah, I think pr- pr- potentially very profound in a vehicle that's geometrically very small and on the road. So, yeah, I, I think we're the most spatially efficient platform in our vehicle architecture uh, for the 21st century, uh, looking at all the different constraints that we have for transportation and needs. And I think this is, you know, Amory Lovins is one of our advisors and, you know, it's like institutional acupuncture just kind of like hit one point, everything changes. And, mm. you know, I, I think the market for, you know, micro mobility, you know, you, you and Horace do some great work, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that, but Thank I'm you. just kind of like yeah. all the data you guys come up with, I'm just like, oh yeah, someone's doing the same research I did a while ago, like yeah. uh, with, with Robin. Yeah. And you guys are, you know, are continuing. And yeah, I, I think, you know, same birds, you know, up a feather basically. So flock together. So um yeah, I think that I think the top of the market for micro mobility, or at least in this micro car space, or I don't know what you call it, you know, it's probably like twenty something million units produced, so it's sold every year. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of room for uh, diversity. I welcome diversity. I'm really in it for impact. I'm in it for proliferating the tech and the platform. I'm in it. You know, obviously this money component for it, but. You know, if we're not around to enjoy the money or, you know, the, the loved ones and our friends uh, and, and have great experiences and, you know, what's the point? So, uh, you know, we just got to use less, use less energy, use less space. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to commute to work. That's just a part of, you know, some of, for some of our careers. And, you know, I think it's important to, in, to interact with people, you know, face to face and, you uh, Sometimes there might be an off-road component where we can all like travel in like, you know, AEV gangs and drive around like a Cura, uh, you know. I, uh, I could see that world where you, you could have uh, an off-road version of this as well. Like, an inc- yeah, I, I, want my, I, I want my Batman Tumblr styles <laughs> version of this thing. Uh, we'll make you one. We'll make you one. Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you. you. No, no, I mean, okay, so, so, so yeah, look, Danny, I just, I want to say thank you. I'm conscious of time. But like, I feel like I have such an easy job in this space. I get to like interview people who are doing the hard things. And there are people who I know go through hell and back to be able to make, I think, the world a better place in vehicles that matter. And I take my hat off to you for the, for the resilience and for the journey that you've been on and, and the hard one. And I know it's been tricky and I know that like the world can be an unforgiving place. And I, I hope in being able to tell your story that folks can at least understand a bit more about what you've been through and, and like what hopefully is going to come because I, I I am still very excited. I mean, I've always felt ever since I first saw that lit motors C1 and the first concept drawing back in the day that like this thing should exist. And if it does, then I think it will really help us change the, the, the whole nature of transportation as, as, as we have it. Like if you can have a smaller vehicle that is effectively the car and has all the safety benefits and all that sort of stuff, people will go for that, especially if it's cool, which it is. So, you know, just thank you for continuing and keeping going and, you know, uh, hopefully as well, if you're listening to this and you have a pre-order and, and you, you now uh, have, have a little bit more understanding of where, where the company's at and, and what, what the journey is and where they've been and, and where they're going to go. I would love for, to this. To, I, I hope my, my dream is that we have Danny come and announce this on stage at uh, uh, Micromobility America 2024 or whenever it is uh, and that you can come and check it out and drive the vehicle yourself. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. Thank you, Oliver. Appreciate it. It's glad to be here. Cheers.